You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. How do women come together to ask for climate justice? I would love to go to one of those talks. I really want to know what women are supposed to do. Because I think that is the existential issue of our times. And we have no time left. We are past the tipping point. So that should be what we're talking about. And it just never is. Hello, everyone. Um, it's lovely to be with you. My name is Santilla Chingaipe. I am a filmmaker and historian, and um, my work explores settler colonialism, slavery, and post-colonial migration here in Australia. Um, it is my pleasure to welcome you all to the capital for this wonderful event, exploring politics and power through a global feminist lens. But before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that we are meeting on the unceded lands of the Kulin Nation. I honour and acknowledge the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong peoples, the ancestral caretakers of this land. I pay my respects to elders past and present and extend my respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who continue to occupy unceded lands that are today collectively known as Australia. I would also like to acknowledge on International Women's Day the long history of feminist activism of First Nations peoples across these lands that make up this colonised country. So I'm very excited to be here, partly because uh, I am a graduate of RMIT. Um, and, you know, it's great to be back to host this very, very important conversation. Um, RMIT Culture is proud to be working with the Wheeler Centre to present today's International Women's Day powerful panel discussion supported by the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund, the Victorian Government and City of Melbourne Partnership. This discussion represents RMIT culture and the Wheeler Centre's commitment to celebrating and showcasing the work of people who are making a difference in the world. The Wheeler Centre is proud to host incredible international guests such as Fatima Bhutto to share their urgent writing and ideas. So, to the reason why we're here tonight, um, how are we all feeling about International Women's Day? <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit of a, no, I'm not really sure. So I actually want to know, who, who, who bought a ticket to come here tonight? Can you put your hand up? I want to see. Who got dragged here tonight uh. by someone who bought a ticket? Okay, there's one hand there. That's good. Um, hopefully by the end of the night you will know why you were dragged here tonight. Um, and the urgency of this conversation, because um, as you know, uh, you know, thinking about these issues really are important. Having Being able to have the space to have these conversations is very, very critical. And we are joined by two incredible, incredible human beings. And I will begin by introducing Shakufe Azar, um, who is right at the end there, who is an Iranian-Australian journalist and author and living in Australia since 2010 as an asylum seeker. She is the author of The Enlightenment of the Green Gauge Tree, which was published in 2017 by Wild Dingo Press in Melbourne. This debut novel was nominated by for the International Booker Prize, the Stella, the Pen and National Awards. Shikufe is now completing her second novel, the title of which The Tuba Tree of Our Kitchen. This novel has received two grants so far by Creative Victoria and the Council of Arts. Can you please make her feel very welcome? And our other guest is Fatima Bhutto, uh, who was born in Kabul, Afghanistan, and grew up between Syria and Pakistan. She's the author of several books, 
both fiction and nonfiction, her debut novel, The Shadow of the Crescent Moon, was long listed for the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction, and the memoir about her father's life and assassination, Songs of Blood and Sword, was published to wide acclaim. Her most recent books are The Runaways, a novel, and New Kings of the World, a reportage on globalization and popular culture. Please make Fatima feel very welcome. And I also want to give a special shout-out to our Auslan interpreters who are joining us tonight. Um, so, yeah, just a round of applause to the Auslan interpreters. So I want to begin somewhere where I didn't think I was going to start off today, but I was thinking about it just because of the nature of the day itself. Um, and I want to ask both of you, what International Women's Day means to you, if there is any significance or if it's just another day in the calendar? You should have said. Um, well, thank you, Santi, and um, thank you all for being here. I, I think, okay, well, maybe this is not the right thing to say on International Women's Day, but I think at this point, you know, yesterday was like International Pancake Day and tomorrow is International High Heel Day and then afterwards it's going to be International Braces Wearing Day. I mean, so for me, I think it's kind of obnoxious and offensive um, that half the world's population has to have a day and then feel like something's been done for them. I also think, and I've done a lot of these things, so I acknowledge that I'm here for it. Um, no one invited me to International Pancake Day, but <laughs> I, I probably would have gone. But, but having done these things many times before, what I have started to feel is that every year there is something mm. that everybody like thinks is the new feminist issue. And I remember when it was Islam, you know, is it good for women? Is it bad for women? Then there was like war on terror, you know, how does that help women? Because that was also an angle of the war on terror. Um, and then, you know, there's been many other things since, but I've never actually heard anyone talk about climate change, mm. which is the single greatest threat to women globally. Um, you know, nothing anywhere else on earth is going to touch a fraction of, of what climate change will do to the population of humanity. But we know that climate change affects women disproportionate to, to men. Mm. So what do we do with these days? I mean, I, I don't know if we use them as powerfully as we could. I think it's great that we talk. I think it's great we have conversations. But I think we have to have a couple of really urgent ones, and, mm. and we're not having them yet. Happy International Women's Day, everyone. <laughs> you like the Grinch that stole International Women's Day. Yeah. <laughs> what about the usual? Uh, so about my understanding about Women's Day. So let me start from my experience. In 2004, I started hitchhiking and backpacking in Silk Road. That I was telling you the story. It just reminds me that I can yeah. start my conversation now about from this experience. So I went from Af Iran to Afghanistan, to Tajikistan, to Kyrgyzstan, to China and Pakistan. And then I went to India and then back to Iran from Pakistan again. So two times Pakistan anyway. And I met so many, and most of these countries are Muslim. And I found, I'd never been in Arabic countries, but I found that none of these women had so 
horrible experience that we have with our compulsory hijab. So all of these are Muslim countries. So in Pakistan, women had no scarf or they have like shawl very loosely. And so in Afghanistan, yes, they are more, you know, strict to cover their body. And but it was so interesting that I found we all, it seems we all are Muslim, but the governments have different idea about women in these Muslim countries. So in my experience, Women Day is the only day that make me and make people think that who really we are in under our political system, who we are. Are we an object or subject of the Sharia law? This is not the case in Iran. People doesn't want, women doesn't want to be like that. And this is why we have Jina or Mahsa revolution. We don't want compulsory hijab. This is the one of our problem, but it's not the all. Another point is the, about the, all of the Sharia laws about women rights. So our right is half of men. So our children has no any right. If a father kill his children, he goes only two years in the prison and he get free. Why? Because Sharia say, Sharia say. So Women Day is a day that makes me think that there are so many things wrong in, under the control of Muslims' government. I respect to all Muslims, but we are talking about this political system that they write their laws on base of 1400 years ago. So it is the case in Iran. So in Women Day, we think that we don't want so many things and we need to change. We escaped the country, they exiled us, they arrest us, they torture us until we obey them and be kind of women that they want. The woman that just give birth to child, to good boy Muslims, and then sit at home and even if he was, she wanna go out, she should get um, she should be allowed by her husband or father or brother. So no way, you know, we don't want this system. We don't want this religion even. So in, in Women's Day, it's a good excuse for us to challenge all of these barriers. So to me, Women's Day is only one day, yes, and next to the pancake day, yeah, days, I'm totally <laughs> agree with you, but it's still a good day to think about all of the limited that this religion put around of us. Mm. Mm. I don't know, I mean, I, I have to say, I think also there's no singular experience of being a woman. Mm. We were talking backstage about mm. your amazing travels in, in Pakistan, and I mean, just hitchhiking, mm is incredible to have done alone. And we were trading stories and, and I'd been to Iran two times on a journalist visa. And I don't have to cover my hair in, in Pakistan. It's not the law. I mean, I, you can wear what you like pretty much and um, you don't have to wear a hijab. But I felt much freer in Iran than I do in Pakistan because uh, my physical safety was not in danger in Iran. Mm. So when I went to Iran, my thought was, oh, okay, I have to cover my hair, but I can take taxis at night. I can go and interview people in ministries. All right, I don't mind. Better than not covering my hair and I can't leave my house. Mm. I mean, I think these topics are so complicated and they are so, they're so multiple and diverse mm. that it, it asks a lot of women to have 
one take on them on one day <laughs> in one discussion. You know, at the same time, if we're talking about um, governments, I mean, I'm not sure any government run religiously does any great service to women. You know, I, I mean, look at America and Roe versus Wade. You have women who need life-saving abortions. They just can't have them anymore. So I think the question for me is not religion, but it's it's power. Mm-hmm. And And again, if we look at, you know, the two secular countries in the Middle East, Syria and Iraq, they were completely obliterated by the West and its allies. I mean, by the way, today we are all meeting here today on the 20th anniversary of the U.S.'s illegal invasion of Iraq. 20 years ago, exactly on this day, the U.S. and its allies allies invaded Iraq on a lie. Mm. Um, And... Uh, essentially for oil and they destroyed that country they they kicked off a sectarian civil war that has killed hundreds of thousands of people something like a million people have been killed between the american invasions of iraq and afghanistan um the us occupation of iraq led to the creation of isis mm. i mean directly not even indirectly neither tony blair nor george bush has apologized for these plunderings, you know. So when we're talking about power and we're talking about women, let's let's not forget, um, you know, let's not forget the environment we're speaking in. Yeah. If I may say something, please. You know, when you live in some country, it's hmm. different experience when you travel. When I traveled to Pakistan, I felt I had beautiful beer there. <laughs> and then I said, oh, my God, in Sufi dance and Sufi festival. So I had so interesting experience yeah. that I never, ever you can have in Iran. So, yeah. But when you live in the country, you know, you see many layers of the, you know, social so society. So in Iran, in last four or five months, we had everyone perhaps know that we have a revolution in Iran. We call it Women Life Freedom Revolution or Gina or Mahsa Amini Revolution. And all is a start with the name of a girl. A beautiful 20 years old girl just came to Tehran from Kurdistan, another state of Iran, to Tehran to just enjoy time in holiday. And what's happened? Her hijab wasn't appropriate in eyes of the moral police, and then they arrest her and they killed her just in two days, one day or two days. And then people came to the streets and said, women like freedom, we don't want your hijab, that you compulsory hijab, we don't want this regime, we don't want the, the political religious system make decision for our woman and Regime killed thousands and thousands of women and girls and people to say, I didn't kill, we didn't kill Mahsa Amini. So when we talk about safety and security, it's just the the, the distance between you make decision to take your scarf or you cover your head with a scarf. When you take your scarf, there is no security and safety. No way, everyone, police, moral police, and there's so many, the pro-people, pro-regime people come to you directly, cover your head, this is a Muslim country, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So, you know, when you live there, you don't see, you don't feel safety. 
Yeah. I want to come back to a point that you mentioned, Fatima, which is this idea of the specificity of these issues within certain territories, because I think there is this sense when you are in the so-called global north to sort of look at the so-called global south as having all of these issues, and yet Mm. there are quite – there are all these cultural nuances depending on the territories. And as you highlighted, you gave the example of the US Mm. with the overturning of Roe versus Wade – But I'm interested in this idea, and Shukufa, you touched on this, um, how women are usually at the forefront of pushing the needle when it comes to um, bringing to the fore the issues that really matter, you know. Um, And I kind of want to spend a bit of time unpacking some of that. I mean, I'm thinking in in the Australian context, I'm thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement here, which Mm -hmm. was led and has been led by black Indigenous women um, who have galvanised the community in sort of getting us to not just think about the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the impact of, uh, the ongoing impact, I should say, of colonisation on First Nations communities. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I also think about how this translates globally. I mean, Shikufe touched on how Marsha Amini's death led to this floodgate, pretty much, of protests around Iran calling mm-hmm. for wider reform what is the role of women in protest movements and how how does feminism sit within that? Hmm. Well, you know, you mentioned colonialism and women have always been um, at the forefront of resisting occupation, colonialism. Um, you know, if we're looking back not that long ago to the French occupations of Algeria, mm. um, part of the ways that occupation was done was on the bodies of women. You know, we're talking a lot about hijab or not hijab, and um, it's not just Iran or it's not just Afghanistan that has brought this issue to the fore. You know, the, one of the French ways of trying to subdue the Algerian population was to try and use the the head covering, the hijab. So the French would make posters of of beautiful women with long hair and, you know, curvy bodies saying, don't you want to be beautiful? Take off your hijab, you know. They had a whole sort of side industry of photographs of Algerian women deveiled. You know, there was this awful white gazy, exotic kind of thing going on, which is a bit sleazy. And so at that time, women resisted by wearing veils, by saying, we're not French, and we're not going to speak your language, and we're not going to take your culture, and I'm going to use this to separate myself from you. In another place, in another time, it's to take off the veil. You know, I think women have to be the ones to choose what they want to do. Mm. Um, If we look closer um, to our current moment, you know, if we look back on the war on terror, which brutalized not just Iraq, Afghanistan, um, but many, many other places in the Muslim world, from Pakistan to some, you know, um, Syria, Yemen, Libya, you had renditions, you know, we had um, people picked up in the middle of the night and and disappeared, taken to black, black sites, taken to Guantanamo, taken to all kinds of places under the guise of fighting terror. And one of the ways in Pakistan, at least, that we found out that this was happening was because the mothers and the sisters of the disappeared started to gather. When the men gathered, they were easily beaten or they were easily disappeared themselves and put in jail. And then the mothers started sitting outside of parliament with their son's pictures. Mm -hmm. The sisters started sitting outside of press clubs. So women who often have the least amount of resources, Mm. they have the least safety net, 
Um, they have the least visibility. They have the least voices or representation in parliament are usually the ones who launch the fiercest protests, the most dangerous protests. Um, I don't know why that is, actually. I just know that, that it is. Mm. For you, Shikofe, I mean, you, you, I guess I just, I, I want to spend a bit more time um, unpacking that, you know, what led to the protests that are currently taking place in Iran with the very act that Marta Mini took. Um, and the history of women resisting in yeah. Iran um, and, and, and wanting to see change. Yes. So when Islamic Republic happened in 1979, um, in, uh, I think it was in October. Yes, I think so, yeah. And only one month after, before that, Khomeini, leader of Islamic Revolution, said that women are free and there is no compulsory hijab and all are documented. There are so many newspapers that um, cover his, you know, uh, speech. And then just less than one month after he became the leader of Islamic Revolution in Iran, he said that women should cover their, their head. And if if anyone want if any woman want to work in governmental office, they should have manto. Manto is a long coat, and also hijab like a scarf. And then he said, if you don't, it means you are not Muslim, and so if you don't like this country, you should just go out of this country. So clear. And then what happened? Immediately, all women came to a street for ten days. All of them being high educated, they worked, they traveled alone, so very, you know, middle class women came to a street to protest. And what happened? Men didn't support them. They always, women, women came to a street and no men know their husband, know their brother, no one come to support them. So the protest just failed. But it's continued almost every five years, every 10 years, and it's until now that we called our revolution a feminist revolution because the first opposition of Islamic revolution was women. Mm. Because the first law came after Islamic revolution came for women. They said, okay, women, now welcome to Islam. So this is Islam that we understand. So you should cover your body, your right is half of the man, your right is this, you are not allowed to study, to marry, to work or travel out of the country or even put your feet out of your house without your man permission. And your man could be your father, your brother or your husband. And they are low, you know in Iran, and it was huge cultural shock for us. My second novel is actually, part of my second novel is about that. It was huge cultural shock because in short time, women have been free with, you know, mini jupe, what you call it, very short, you know. Mini skirt. Mini yeah. skirt, yeah. And, uh, you know, they had dancing, drinking, parties, and all of them goes to university. And so there were so many freedom for women. And women had the right to vote only one year after Switzerland starts giving permission to women vote. Right. So we had so many rights in Pahlavi's time that all of them by sudden 
just removed from women rights and it was huge cultural shock. I was just like, I remember in the 1980s, I was a teenager. And I remember the face of city change, the face of even, you know, newspaper and magazine change, everything became black and white. Mm. And so it's, it shouldn't be, you know, um, surprise you to see our revolution is a feminism revolution. Because we've been the first opposite of this regime from the first month. Yeah. I want to go back to today and obviously taking into consideration um, what you've both highlighted in terms of the global context. And, you know, when I was thinking about today, and I said at the same place that you said before I sort of think International Women's Day, I treat it like Christmas. There's, you know, mm -hmm. people come at Christmas very differently. You get the people that get very obsessed with the gifts and the presents and you mm -hmm. get people that just want to spend time with family or loved ones and everything in between. And for me, I guess, where I sit with International Women's Day, it's the sense that it's a day where I, um, I can hold space with other women, where we can talk about the urgency of the issues that confront us, but also be very critical of what is hijacking feminism, which capitalism, which is hijacking so many other um, uh, social issues as well. And I kind of want to go there. I, I, I want to go to that place where, and I was thinking about this today because I read a I was rereading a piece that I wrote years ago um, in my – it was a different stage of my feminism, and my feminism will keep evolving um, as I keep growing. And it was at the phase of my feminism where I was very angry, mm. and I was putting my blame at the feet of, femini of uh, capitalism, mm. you know, and very critical of white feminism. Mm. And I was <laughs> reading that today, and I sort of thought, okay, that gave me – uh, uh, something to blame. Capitalism was this thing that I could sort of go, okay, this is the reason why we find ourselves where we find ourselves. About five, six years on, I'm, I was asking myself, how would I, where do I sit now with my feminism? And I, and I kind of arrived at this place where I was asking myself that my feminism now is interested in sort of knowing, like I'm acknowledging that I now live under capitalism. Mm. But what does it mean for me to be a feminist, knowing that there are these limitations? Until we decide, or until there's a different economic structure, we're still living under capitalism. So what does it mean to be a feminist? What does it mean to express forms of radical love, which is what I see? And, and this is what I'm now thinking about. I'm, and so I'm kind of curious to hear from both of you about how you view yourselves as feminists in this moment um, and how that has shifted over the years. I mean, you touched on mm. climate change before mm. and I want to get to that at some point, but, but, but I really do want to know how you've shifted in your own yeah. perceptions as a feminist. Yeah. Do you, you want to start? I, I should um, think. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, I think... Virginia Woolf said, any woman who tells the truth about her own life is a feminist. Mm. And I think that's quite a good definition mm. because I think we, um, it's a minefield, isn't it? You know, what makes you a feminist, what doesn't? You know, I'm always surprised by women who want to tell you they're not feminist. Um, and I, I think, I guess my, my early version of feminism <coughs> was a bit different than yours um, in that, 
it was much more personal. Um, and I've come around to your early version, which is much more capital and resource-based. So I think the East and the West do the same thing to women using essentially the same argument from other ends. So what the East says to women is that you're so precious and you're so dainty and you're so lovely that you can't possibly look after yourself. Like, please let us, you know, come here. Don't look at anyone. We'll cover you up and hide behind that curtain. And it's because you're wonderful we're doing mm -hmm. this, you know. And don't worry, we look after everything. Thank you, go along. And, and the West does kind of the same thing. It says like, oh, you know, you're so wonderful. Like, don't you think everyone should know? Take off all your clothes, go have sex, wear a mini skirt, put your hair down. You're not a real woman, unless you do. And it says that you have to express liberty physically through your body. And this is the determination of whether you are a free woman or not a free woman. And actually, they still shame you as well. Of course, of course, while they shame you and judge you at yeah. the same time. But, you know, oh, you're a woman who wants to wear long, like, what, are you ashamed of your body? Like, mm. no, take it off, go to the disco. But actually, <laughs> what I think, I mean, I'm simplifying, guys, but... <laughs> no, it's because you said disco. Uh, it's because I, yeah. We should bring back disco. It's such a good word. But disco. So, so but, here's, but here's the thing that I think really determines women's freedom. Um, is whether they are free to make, forget what they wear or whether they go to the disco. Um, is, 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 are they able to, to provide for themselves? You know, and here's where the capitalism argument comes in. Do they have the space in which, um, to work, to, to be free, to have opinions while they work? Uh, is their labor respected? Is their labor acknowledged? Um, are they able, um, to protest uh, something they don't like because they don't have to think about losing a day's wage. Mm. I mean, I think that's what makes women free mm. at the mm. end of the day. Um, I think representation makes women free. Mm. You know, there are, I, I looked this up, obviously, because I thought you need a couple of these when you come to one of these events. But, but there's only like five countries in the world that have more than 50% political representation of women in, in, in parliament or Congress. Mm. Only five. And they're not even the countries you'd think, you know. Like the first one is Rwanda, mm. um, and then Cuba, and then I can't remember the others because I've forgotten them, obviously. But, but, but they're not like the Western countries. Yeah, I don't think any of them are Western countries actually. So, so when we talk about freedom, I'm I'm really interested in the fact that women a have the freedom um, to be heard, um, they have the freedom to live without fear, um, and you know that's where the climate argument comes in, which is that if we're all going to be consumed by floods and fires and drought and famine, it's not really going to matter uh, what we wear or how many days we get or, you know, which feminist groups we belong to or which ones we don't like. Um, it's going to be an incredible leveler mm. and it's going to take everyone down but with it. is it though? Like, is it, I mean, I, I sort of think when we're thinking about even, I mean, is it an issue that is, separate from all the other social Climate? issues yeah as in you know you sort of go you know the people that will most be directly affected will be women yeah most likely women in the so-called global south yeah um women that might not have access to education all these sorts of things and 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 i and i and, I, and, and so how does that level out when they're people that will be disproportionately impacted and are actually being disproportionately impacted given the impacts of climate change that we're already experiencing? Well, I mean, this is the incredible thing, is that, you know, they say 80% of people affected by climate change are going to be women. 
They, and they're, they're the first hit because they have the, the fewest resources. So that's a simple reason, right? Um, they're more likely to die during extreme weather events or disasters, not only because of the disaster themselves, but because for women, for example, and this may be strange to hear, but to go to a bathroom mm. increases your chance of, of, of violence, you know, because you have to be separate, you have to go find privacy um, in places like Bangladesh, Pakistan, India. Even without a disaster, for a woman to go to the bathroom is a dangerous act. Mm. When she lives in a rural place, she can be sexually assaulted. Women have incredibly high <coughs> numbers of UTIs in these places because they just don't go mm. for their safety. But let's leave all that aside. Um, I can't remember now who checked, who looked at this. But a study was done a few years ago, quite recently, that looked at how much funding issues that touched climate change and women received from international bodies. And, you know, we talk about all the cops and all these, and they're all greenwashing, really. But if you really want a greenwashing statistic, it's something like 0.01% of all funding to climate issues goes to women. Mm. I mean, that's, that's really grotesque, you know. So if we know it affects women, it affects pregnant women. I mean, there's so many ways in which climate change will affect women. Um, And there's no funding. There's no attempt to talk about it. There's no attempt. How do women come together to ask for climate justice? I would love to go to one of those talks. I really want to know what women are supposed to do. Mm. Because I think that's the only, that, that is the existential issue of our times. And we have no time left. We are, we are, we're past the tipping point. So that should be what we're talking about. And it just never is. Mm. Shukufa, I want to pick up on something that Fatima mentioned and you talked about as well when you were, uh, you know, articulating the events in, in, in Iran following Marsha Amini's um, murder and the cost that comes with speaking up as a woman publicly. Um, and I wonder if you could speak to that. You know, what, what, what does it take for women to stand up and say that they feel like something is unjust? And, you know, even in your own personal capacity, I mean, what has that been like to speak out publicly about some of these issues that some people might disagree with? Yeah. So um, my understanding, protests were so, um, I think, like an important point for us. The first protest after... Islamic revolution, as I mentioned, was the feminism revolution. And, and then after that, we had a quite a long time, like a decade quiet time. No protest, no revolution. And then suddenly it was like um, 80, um, 1980s, uh, end of 80s or early of 1990, that we had a huge protest. It was a student, university student uh, protest. And then students there been so bravely, you know, they come out and they question so many, you know, wrong laws. And then all of them being arrested and killed. But again, next 10 years was quiet time and then another protest and more protests. And the time became shorter and protests became more and more. And it's, it's brought knowledge to people that, okay, people, you are upset, you are unhappy, you can join to the protest. 
Even if they suppress us, even if they arrest us and put in the jail, in the end, we have our voice. And now, we in last, I think in last two years, every single day, or maybe at least every single week, we have protests in Iran. Women protest, labor protest, student protest, you know, all people all the time are in the streets and say, okay, we don't want you, we, don't, we want to change. And I think it makes people stage by stage, step by step, braver and braver. Mm. And I remember also in Khatami time, uh, the most popular, uh, you know, uh, president of Iran, Khatami, he was handsome, and we all girls been so, oh my God, he's so good. <laughs> he said so many beautiful words to women, and they all, all women <laughs> fell in love for him because he had he had sweet, sweet words about women. He said, you women have rights. He was the first government person that he said, you women have rights, you have some needs, you have some, um, uh, so many things that we need to change. And if you vote me, I bring all of the change. And we all vote to him and we all say, oh my God, he's, he's our God, he's our, um, what's, his, what's the word? He's a holy man. And then after two, three years, he just said, sorry, guys, I made mistake. I have no power. But, and now we hate him because he lied a lot. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> but he did one thing perfectly. He taught us that we women have right. Mm-hmm. Yes, after two years, he he said, no, I was wrong, but <laughs> the <laughs> message <away>? spread. <laughs> yes. so, so he took the rights away? Pardon? After, did he take the rights away after two years? No, he just didn't No, no, he was eight years there. No, he was eight years. He was pre- prime minister of Iran. But anyway, he had sweet words, but in the action was zero. Got it. So that, that was the problem. But, he, but it was great because the message was spread everywhere. People, women said, yes, we have right. And if he can't say behind, you know, in, the, in loud, why we can't? And then women, students, you know, all educated women, and even a student in a school, prim- primary school, they said, we don't want a compulsory job. Mm-hmm. And you know what is the meaning of feminist, feminism for us now? It's just one sentence. Men leave us alone. Wow. <laughs> I feel like that's the same sentiment yeah. here as well. Um, and the Prime Minister you're describing sounds like quite a few of my own ex-boyfriends um, <laughs> in false promises. But I want to come back to this idea of the cost of speaking up. Um, mm. And Shukufe, you talked about it very much in the Iranian context. And I know in my own context, living here in Australia, in Melbourne, where you know, there's certain levels of comfort and security that are afforded, mm. that I'm afforded, but I have also, you know, because of the work that I do and some of the work is public, um, been subjected to abuse um, and all sorts of things. And I've had to question whether or not it's worth me even speaking up on certain things. Mm. And I, and I want to talk about the cost that comes with being a woman um, in the public arena, um, sharing your views um, in any context, you know, yeah. whether it is in the uh, global south or the global north. Um, I want to start with you, Fatima. Like your own experience. I feel like Shukufe should take this one. <laughs> okay. right. I'll start, yeah. I'll start with so, like, just mm. your own experiences yeah. of speaking out about these mm. sorts of issues, because, like I said, not everyone 
will agree with you um, and some people might strongly disagree and sometimes that disagreement might might turn violent and abusive and how you deal with that. Yeah, so our problem in Iran, our problem is not the disagreements between people. Our problem is disagreement between people and governments. Mm. So when you stand for your voice, so the, 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 the response of the regime always is same and so simple. They arrest you, torture you, rape you, and execute you. We have so many people, thousands and thousands people, that they've been killed, executed, and killed, just shot, shot, what you say, shot, shot, <laughs> and, you know, just so simple. And right now that we are talking, you know, but how regime uh, revenged against our Gina revolution? Right now that we are talking, every single day in more than 500 schools, regime had chemical attack in girl, student girls' school. Can you believe that? Just go and please just Google this. Regime had chemical attack to girls' school, and more than 5,000 students went to hospitals, and one died, already died. And this is the type of regimes respond to our protest. And so many, we, you know, we, I don't know you know about that. My first novel was about um, chain murderer of the oh, second novel, sorry. My first novel was the execution of 1988 when regime executed 5,000 opponents only in one month in summer. And uh, from age nine to age 80. They executed 5,000 people in jail just because they had different opinion, political opinion or religion beliefs. This is the type of response that we always receive, but it makes us to be suppressed, yes, make us scared, yes, make us exile or free, uh, escape from the country, yes, but it also makes us more strong. We don't scare anymore. You want to kill us? Okay, come and kill us. But let me talk first, and then you kill me. And in Australia, right here, me and so many other people also treated, get treated by the regime. And imagine what happened with the, you know, in Iran. So the response always is the same. We torture you. This is our message. Regime say, this is our message. We kill you. We kill, they killed more than 1,000 intellectuals in Iran that we call it the chain murderer of intellectuals in Iran. More than 1,000 journalists, writers, poets, translators, academic people, they've been killed mysterious way, in mysterious way, and regime never took their responsibility. Always said, no, it wasn't me, it was my sleeve. It wasn't me. Maybe someone else did that. So this is the same response. And it still is the same, and now is more violent. Mm. And this is why we believe even every, if we can be win this revolution, it's amazing because every day that we bring the, the winning of this revolution closer to us is a huge winning for us because less people are dying, less people are getting killed by the regime.
Hmm. What about you, Fatima? Well, I think it's quite simple. I think anyone that threatens power pays a price for it. Hmm. I think when women threaten that power, they pay the price. And I think the attention of the world is insincere on 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 shining a a, a wide light. So the, you know, obviously, there's nowhere in the world where women are treated perfectly well or mm. you know and I always say me too at least exposed that the western world had its own problems mm. because for very long at many of these events um, you know people like me would be asked to justify our own existence in the global south and tell us about how bad your life is everything's fine here mm. so me too is, has cracked that um, facade open and, and thank god for it but at the same time you know Okay, it's important, obviously, to talk about um, where we can, but why is no one talking about Saudi Arabia? I mean, mm. I'm sorry, they li literally got the right to vote in Saudi Arabia like four years ago. Mm. I'm if oh, I'm not even sure they have elections. Maybe I'm thinking of somewhere else. But um, you know, women couldn't drive until six Recently, years ago. Yeah. You know, they had a guardianship law. You know, Iran, of course, has plenty of problems. Pakistan has plenty of problems. <laughs> women can go to university. In fact, they go, the majority of university students are women, mm, yeah, aren't they, in course, Iran? Yeah. You can't do any of that in Saudi Arabia. You know, and the, the activists who pointed that out, they were thrown in jail, the key was thrown away, and, you know, that's a dependence on Saudi oil, so we don't need to talk about it. Mm. You know, let's talk about um, Kashmir. Let's talk about the most militarized zone in the world, where there is over a million troops. Um, Kashmir had the longest internet shutdown of any democracy in the world back in 2019. Um, we don't talk about it. India's an ally of the West. India's a buffer against China. It's okay. They'll be fine. Women will manage there. You know, let's not talk about Palestinian women. Mm. You know, God forbid we speak about Palestinian women. That will make people very uncomfortable. Yes. But they've faced 75 years mm. of forced expulsions, arrest, torture, disappearance, dispossession, land theft, but we don't want to make them a, a feminist issue, you know. So I think, I'm, I think we have to have solidarity, but we shouldn't be selective in yeah. our solidarity. Why don't we do it for everyone then? Any yeah. place where a woman needs to be heard, we should listen. And we but need, even here, like I want to come back to that point because you talked about representation before and mm. the importance of it. And one of the things that even happens in the Australian context is mm. that when women dare to speak up, mm. they are subjected to abuse. Sure. They are attacked. They are, you know, in many instances, slut-shamed and all these sorts of things. And I wonder what that does to other women who are watching that, who want to dare to speak up. Sure. Yeah. And they see how other women are being treated publicly. And this, this, this is across the board. It's not just in the Australian context. Yeah. Um, where women dare to speak up and their consequences that um, associated with, you know, saying enough is enough, you know, because there is a price that they pay. And you did touch on this briefly. And, and, I, and I kind of want to spend a little bit of time mm -hmm. on that because I think in this conversation that we're having, I mean, even in Iran, when you talked about the stakes involved, mm. which are literally a matter of life and death, mm. um, not an easy thing to step up and sort of go, you know what, this is, uh, I'm willing to risk my life to do this. And I think, like you said, I think in the West sometimes we're, we can distance ourselves and sort of go, mm -hmm. well, that's happening over there, it's not quite happening over here. Yeah. But we do see examples here where women will say things that make people in positions of power uncomfortable. And I do wonder, like, 
you know, the costs associated with speaking yeah. up as a woman. Well, I mean, look at Greta Thunberg, you know, who began an incredible movement when she was a child. You know, she was 15, mm. 15 years old when she did that first strike against climate change and, and for climate justice. And she's been attacked by presidents, mm. by, you know, Andrew Tate, you know. Oh, gosh. Goodbye, Andrew Tate. But, but <laughs> who hasn't attacked her? And, and, and why? <clears throat> What is she saying? She's saying we have a limited amount of time to take radical action to save the planet. I, I don't understand why Donald Trump would insult her. I don't understand why Andrew Tate would attack her or troll her. I mean, it's sick. And I think, unfortunately, the culture we live in um, is a bit of a sick culture globally. You know, it's a culture that's desensitized, that's not compassionate, that, that finds it almost a sport to go after women. And it doesn't really, if you've been, if you've been <laughs> engaged in that sport for so long, I guess it doesn't matter that she's a teenager or that she's never done anything wrong to anyone mm. or that she should be listened to. Even if you don't agree with her, you can just shut up and, you know, go about your day. But I don't, I'm not sure it's specifically um, a place problem. It's a, it's a, it's a, It's but a it's, culture I, I problem, think what I guess what I'm interested in is that role that power has in silencing women, right? If you yeah. choose to attack a woman that speaks publicly, shame her, condemn her, you know, yeah. feeling like you're sending the message that any other woman that dares to speak up yeah. will equally be shamed, silenced. And so if you are a woman that might be thinking or feeling the same way, you might sort of go, well, you know, I saw what happened to Greta and I don't think that I can, you know, and, and, and it's sort of how... How do we as women resist that? Mm. Very much knowing that there are consequences and you know involved in speaking up, mm. but it's that active resistance of this is the the the, ro the role of power is yeah. that it does this to ensure that we are silenced. It does it to everyone though. I think it does it to everyone, and you don't have a choice anymore. Mm. You you speak, and you you do it with you know as as you've said yourself here. You speak, you take the consequences as they come, but I think there are certain issues in which we don't have a choice. We have to talk. Mm. You know, Margaret Atwood said that women are afraid men will kill them and men are afraid women will laugh at them. <laughs> you know, so, so power, I think that's quite true. The power will always <coughs> silence dissent. Mm. But women have an added fear, you know. It's, it's, a, it's a very tangible, visceral fear. And, you know... I don't think that means we stay silent, though. Yeah. I hope if there's anything that's come out of this conversation that, yes, we, you know, um, should be aware and we should be thinking about the issues that impact women globally, but we should also we also shouldn't be distracted from the fact that women in this country also are facing so many barriers to access, whether it's housing, whether it's education, whether it's healthcare, and we see that particularly when it comes to First Nations communities. So um, as much as, yes, we are thinking about things and we should be thinking about this and pushing for political reform when it comes to the scale of it on a global level, we also shouldn't be distracted from the fact that these things are also happening in our own backyard as well. Um, so I thank you all for coming. Wonderful that you came out on in International Women's Day. Uh, it's a wonderful day to hold space and to be able to have these conversations. I hope that they continue in your homes, in your workspaces, in schools. Um, and if you could please kindly join me in thanking our fantastic guests, Shikufe Azar and Fatima Bhutto. Thank you.
You've been listening to Santilla Chingepe in conversation with Fatima Bhutto and Shukufe Azar. It was recorded at the Capitol on Wednesday, 8th of March, 2023, presented in partnership with RMIT Culture. This event was supported by the Melbourne City Revitalization Fund, the Victorian Government and City of Melbourne Partnership. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.